Welcome to the Pop Cult Podcast. Here are your hosts Ariana and Seth. This is the Pop Cult Podcast. I'm Seth. I'm Ariana. And today we're going to be reviewing uh, two new foreign films, for, for at least foreign if you live in the United States or an English speaker. Uh, we'll be reviewing uh, Alice Diop's uh, Saint-Omer later in the show. But first up, we're going to be talking about an international A24 release. I believe it was A24, I think. Yes, uh, close. Uh, this is a Belgian film directed by Lucas Dont, uh, a director I have no familiarity with. I only kind of knew a little bit about this movie going into it. Uh, the premise is that 13-year-old boys Leo and Remy have a close friendship at school and in the flower fields where they and their parents pick the harvest for home. When schoolmates shoot a wedge into the relationship, the consequences are fatal. So, Ariana, what did you think of Close? I thought Close was beautifully shot to the point that there are times that things feel like an oil painting or watercolor. The lighting was so good. And the story is very good where you're not being like bombarded with this being like, it's a gay story, guys. We don't have anyone sitting down and explain explaining uh gender norms or sexuality that's not anybody. it's not a didactic film there's yeah. not a bunch of exposition so it's a movie that respects the audience's intelligence to understand what's happening yeah and i think it also it kind of pulls you into that feeling of being a child during that time and that things aren't and by that time you don't mean time period just no. that age yeah that age where things aren't explicitly like sexual it more has to do with the emotional weight in where you don't understand it you're just going with the flow of it yeah i would agree with your comment on the technical aspects of the movie the cinematography is incredible uh, not just the, it's a that mix of blocking and lighting. So like how a shot is framed and the way light and shadow are used. I also found the color saturation to be really good. There's a lot of scenes that take place in, I believe they're supposed to be kind of like tulip fields. Cause this is in Belgium, which neighbors the Netherlands. Yeah. Uh, and every color is vivid without like kind of blowing the color out. It's just like the perfect boldness you would want. Mm -hmm. Um, and like you said, it's a film that approaches its subject matter with a lot of tenderness and a lot of subtlety. <clears throat> uh, it's funny because apparently there are like reviewers from festivals and things who are calling the film like manipulative. How so? And, and very like maudlin. They're they're trying to frame it as a movie that. Uh, like sort of telegraphs the emotions to the audience and that made me just think have you seen american movies because those movies telegraph yeah. emotions to people this movie like what am i supposed to do hate the kids <laughs> like there's not you're not gonna hate the kids it's just hard to hate kids and i think what it does is it it would have been very easy for leo to have been villainized by the movie yeah and the movie refuses to do that and it says this is more complex than that and let's explore the complexity of the situation and how there's no villain. Like it's, it's a movie about homophobia, but not cartoonish in the way American movies are 
where there'll be this sort of exaggerated bully or something. Yeah. It's it's a it's a more subtle homophobia where it's just kids picking up on things they notice and they don't necessarily mean to harm anyone. It's just a thing that kids do by it's teasing. Like, that's odd. I'm not used to that. Or, well, if you're going to be what you are, just say it loud and proud. And and the all- boy's not even being aware that they're supposed to be something. Yeah, and I think it's also the fact that we're dealing with uh, children that, like, being the age of 13, you're on that, like, cusp of being a child going into adulthood and becoming a teenager where... Uh, Play is essentially taken away from you, but it's also the fact that, like, particularly, like, in male relationships, that closeness is supposed to be forbidden at a certain point. Like, you know. You're not supposed to be that intimate. Yeah, like, you know, a toddler's holding hand, that's fine, but, like... A 13-year-old boy's holding hands is bad for a lot of people. against each other, or, like, uh, being affectionately, like, physically affectionate towards each other is considered, like, a bad thing. And what's interesting is, like you said, we don't even have bullies within the adults none of the adults remark on it none of the there's never a moment where you know a mom goes to like for example like leo's mom goes to him to be like hey you guys are having too many like sleepovers you need to stop well that's i feel like having a man it's just like it's more like nobody ever really tells them to stop hanging out with each other it's the observations of the other children cause leo to bristle and push remy away yeah and uh, like I like how somebody said, it's not even a film about masculinity. It's a film about that process moving from innocence into an awareness of prejudice in the world and the way certain things feel uncomfortable because of their they're unfamiliar. And uh, yeah, I thought it was just it handled the idea of someone realizing they're gay. In a way I've never seen in a movie before. Yeah, where it's sort of like there is obviously from what we're seeing is a lack of representation for them. for, And that is why the like homophobia becomes an internal homophobia. Yeah. It becomes a subtle homophobia because it's not as if like we're seeing them flip through the channels and seeing like, you know, men kissing or uh reading books about like gay men and someone like nobody's going, ew, it's just they don't they don't have it represented to them in their day-to-day life so of course it the response is going to be well this isn't normal the other kids aren't doing it like particularly the boys like at the beginning it's supposed to be like they kind of start school and it's the girls that are asking them are you a couple yeah are you together the boys the other boys seem to be kind of oblivious to it or don't care not that they're oblivious it's because the boys are more side-eyeing <clears throat> looking at them weird and the girls just verbalize what's going they're on more in, in a teasing fashion and but you do notice like glances that other boys do at them. it's so subtle like it's subtle enough but like when you are that young the insecurity is going to creep in and you don't want to be different what i feel like uh eden dumbreen who plays leo who's the sort of protagonist of the film incredible child actor i feel like yeah. oftentimes child actors it's really rough they just don't necessarily have that background of life experience to inform their performances. So they're 
they're basically mimicking what they think it should look like. But everything in uh, Eden's performance is so, it's exactly the way you would expect it to be. And it feels so authentic and feels like it comes from a genuine place. I think it serves the fact that since we don't have a lot of, you know, exposition given out yeah. like verbally this is not a child that has to go in we never hear any of them go no i am not gay yeah or the, like, like homosexual and gay those things don't even i don't think they're said out loud during never the movie said out yeah. loud. like at no point is either child having an exposition explaining like the history of their of their friendship there's no coming out there's scene there's no coming out scene there is which is authentic because when you think about being that age, would you have had the vocabulary to explain what was going through with such intense emotions? You just knew to go with it. You just knew that like something felt off and you wanted to be like the other kids or uh, like, I feel this intense emotion. What am I supposed to do with it? Kind of thing. And then you're looking around mimicking. And that's exactly what Leo is doing, especially because in the film, he's the one that is more of a target for being bullied compared to everybody else. Well, he has what we would classify as more feminine behaviors. Like the way he carries himself kind of is doesn't feel in the sort of stereotypically masculine way we might accept. Yeah. Uh, And I think I think that wasn't interesting in the movie is he's the one who pushes Remy away. And it, I wonder if it's almost because that character of Leo is supposed to kind of understand that, oh, I, I am a little, I would be what they call a sissy. So I need to distance myself from Remy in order to like fight back against that thing I've already have going against me. Yeah. And it feels like that because it's like the way that he moves is very fluid. <laughs> mm-hmm. He is like a gangly kind of kid, very thin. Mm-hmm. Remy, although it's very kind of, delicate. Yeah. Delicate looking. Although Remy, you could be like, oh, he is just as delicate because, you know, he plays an instrument. He, but it's his mannerisms just feel like middle school boy. Right? Yeah. But like Remy feels a little bit almost set and like serious. Yeah. At times and just um, kind of does what there's an assertiveness about him that like feels as if he's just going to do whatever it is that he wants and feels comfortable with. But Leo is the one that's like a lot of insecurity seems more insecure, but then towards what ends up happening in the film, like that is just what we're picking up on them because of the performance. Uh, I do think there's a scene that like stuck out to me as soon as I saw it. And I was like, wow, I've never seen a scene that good, especially from a child actor. It's when Remy is practicing on, I think he plays an oboe. I'm not good with my, my instruments. Yeah. I think that's, Uh, but, uh, He's playing an oboe and Leo's just kind of there in the house hanging out. And it's a shot of Leo watching Remy practice. And Leo is just so in love with this kid. Like, yeah. And it feels so like pure and genuine, just his like admiration Mm -hmm. for Remy's ability to play this instrument. And it's one of those where I'm like, man, for a kid actor to pull that emotion out and without any dialogue, just looking like that's a level of talent and acting we don't see often in adult actors. Well, I think it also says to you like what the direction was given. Yes. Because that means the director knew how to handle these child actors to make them as authentic as possible. 
And there's a lot of child actors in this movie. Yeah. And it's the fact that none of them ever play off as like stiff and like it feels like a kid acting. Every kid in this movie feels like a real kid. Yeah, they do. Uh, One thing that I had as a realization watching this movie, probably thanks to the fact that we ingest uh, THC (laughs) in the evenings, uh, because it's that allows the brain to kind of just go with the flow. I'm watching this movie and I had this realization thinking back to like where we used to live in middle Tennessee. You know, I was homeschooled growing up. I'm autistic. So like my entire perspective on what it's like to grow up as a kid in America is so different from the average kid. It's one of the things I've come to the realization of is I don't know what it's like to grow up as a kid in America. I know what it was like to grow up as me in America, and it was not a lot of fun. But I think it's also, you do relate to a certain degree because now there's such severe isolation amongst kids Uh, when you think about it. And so I never, like I can say very truthfully, I never had close friendships growing up. I mean, being homeschooled didn't help. Yeah. Living when we, I was like nine, 10 years old, we moved to the middle of nowhere and that didn't help because we had no neighbors. And so I never really had, you know, close friendships, male, female, otherwise. Right. But watching this movie, it made me think a lot about whenever I was a teacher and seeing friendships between boys and realizing, oh, I bet this happens all the time. (laughs) In America, like all the time, that you'll have two boys who are really close friends. Maybe they are in love with each other. Maybe one of them is in love with the other, and the other is completely oblivious and unaware, right? Like, and then they hit that middle school age, and then all of a sudden that gets stomped down. And like this movie presents a much more gentle and tender way of dealing with it and allowing people to embrace it. But I can only imagine, you know, this story remade in, you know, Robertson County, Tennessee, is going to be about a kid getting, like, gay bashed is what's going to happen. Well, I mean, there would just be, like, there's no, like, there's no moment of these kids going out and, like, getting ready for church kind of thing. Well, Um, I mean, it's, I feel like Belgium's fairly similar to the Netherlands in that the church is a part of the culture, but you don't necessarily have a spiritual life connected to the church. Yeah, and it's, like, and I was, I distinctively remember having a conversation with you where it was sort of like I realized at the least in my teens and like middle school of having really intense uh female relationships and a lot of times like you know girls have intense relationships with one another but then there's like that barrier where it crossed to like a lesbian relationship at times and it's also like the struggle of trying to understand your sexuality which I didn't understand until now that I'm an adult in reflection towards it being like oh no I was secretly in love with this person I just didn't know what to handle it and it's also like that delicate balance that this movie does very well where it's sort of like you can be like it was a gay relationship where it was just a really intense friendship and it's it's one where like you can interpret it whichever way you want to like you could say Mm -hmm. that maybe for leo it was just an intense relationship and then for remy it was more or it could just be like there was a mutual understanding i mean the title of the movie is just close yeah so you can say yeah well you can't make the argument that it's purely about same-sex relationships i do think on a bigger level it's about 
why do we force people to stop being such close friends at a certain age? Like even platonically, we tell people, no, you can't be that close to that person unless it's, they're going to be your like partner or something. I think it's this weird thing that with hyper individualism and there's also like, I like remember when I was growing up, I had two very close friends, like through like middle school and high school. And my mom distinctively remember like telling me, like, don't get too comfortable with so-and-so. And it was just like this weird thing that with or without meaning to, I knew that she was saying it more because like my heart would get broken and it did get broken. But it's this this weird thing of like by cautioning especially children about like what friendships they should have unless that child is like self-harming and can harm your child what you're just doing is basically like later on without meaning to is telling your child to be afraid of friendships and friendships are like deeply meaningful at the end of the day because sometimes that's the way that you understand that like if you're family relationships are like quote unquote normal or healthy because you can make a comparison between them you could also just rant about life or a mutual understanding of what's going on like i know or simply just see existence from another person's perspective yeah i mean like and it's this thing of it being like friendships then as you become adult are hard to carry forward because there's not that like there's not that thing that connects you unless like you keep, you know, practicing the same hobbies together kind of thing. Like you guys well, can easily drift apart. That, yeah, that's something where, because I, you know, watching this movie and realizing how a lot of these experiences are alien to me. It's something that just, it won't ever happen to me, right? It's also one of those where I look at it and I go, oh, it's a really clear picture of what friendship looks like and that closeness. And it's one of those where... And I certainly, from looking at the statistics, I'm not alone in this. A lot of uh, men my age, Americans, do not have any close friends. And I think on top of that with my autism, I don't have any close friends. But it, it is sometimes weird to me because I think, like, should I want to have friends? Because there is no desire in me. Like, how there's sometimes you have an absence in your life and you can physically feel like, oh, I really want that thing and it hurts that I don't have it. I don't spend any time in my life worried about not having friends. (laughs) I'm just like, oh, okay. And then I just do my thing. And I know that like part of that is just, it's decades of conditioning of things happening to me where I'm just like, well, we're going to burn that that branch off. We're getting rid of that. I don't have those feelings at all in comparison I tend to have a lot of regret from the way that like not even the way that I treat people because it's a lot of friendships of mine did not end because of the treatment it's either it ended because that person crossed the boundary that they shouldn't have or it ended because I just didn't wish to participate in social media anymore and that was the only way that I could have that person like within my vicinity and there's a lot of times that like I feel like oh well they could have we could have been really good friends or I need to make an effort to make friends because it's almost like this thing of like being acknowledged at times that you are alive that someone knows that you're there and it's that thing of also just 
being special to someone or feeling as if you're someone's like favorite person but friendships um can be very hard to maintain especially now and I keep touching on hyper individualism but it also has to do with the fact that we have been conditioned especially within the western culture of believing that we cannot be a burden to someone else we can't take up as much space as we would love to we have to be closed off in order not to burden yeah during that time of like pain and then what happens is at least for me a lot of times what I feel is that like I'm a venting space a locked box for all my friends feelings but then the moment that it comes to me to talk about it which is like this weird thing of people, some people be like, that's just emotional maturity on your part. I was like, I don't know how to take up space from some or from someone. And it's weird because like you said it, like you don't have any inkling to make friends. Meanwhile, I'm kind of like, I would love to make friends and keep them, but I don't know what my emotional capacity is at the moment for because like there's always this weird moment when you're making friends with someone that like it's the polite conversation before the real you comes out like you're trying to make sure if you're safe to do it to be yourself and like we have had instances like that we like we as a couple have other couple friends and I do want to acknowledge like your conditioning because you with or without intention will nitpick people but it's a way of protecting yourself before they come to you to be like, well, I don't like this about him. But it's also because your autism is very much like you are already at a phase where you've talked about because of your autism, you can tell when someone is like completely disinterested in you or, or is already yeah. like zoned out and you can't stop yourself because you're on an info dump. And it's like, well, uh, there are many instances where you feel the obligation to fill the silence with talking. Yeah. And then you realize you're not getting anything from the other person. And then you're just like, why are we even doing and this? Because of a lot, for a lot of people who uh, live with autism, it has to do with the fact that with or without intention, you're regulating your own emotions and you're also trying to regulate the other person's emotions as a protective thing. And like it is a misfortune of sorts because again you were conditioned by being homeschooled by being a shelter by living in the middle of fucking nowhere by also your your parents not having like regular friends like, and that's another thing yeah i did not have that modeled for me at yeah, all yeah and up. so because that wasn't put in practice for you i think that's why when you get to a moment where you could make friends with people is it exhausting for you because it's not a muscle that you've built well, like it's it's weird because you know, watching this movie, you see the friendship between the two of them, and it's something that you're like, Man, I bet that felt feels wonderful, right? To be that close to someone. And like you're my friend, of course. I married you. I wouldn't marry you. <laughs> and we don't really marry our enemies, right? Yeah. And you're like, oh, that seems like that, especially at that age. Wow, what a fulfilling thing to have, right? Uh, but it's weird because there is not like an ounce of an urge in me at all all to seek out friends it is like that whatever part of the brain it is that does that that part is inactive and has been well, like repurposed for something because else because you didn't practice it yeah because you didn't have that practice like we talked about it with like a friend of ours that like works with uh with autistic children on how they miss certain cues and it's also like getting them involved in certain things so they can get that practice and like 
that pathway in their brains can actually develop and becomes easier. Like you told, like you talk about like in college, you exploited that one. Well, I mean, yeah, I remember having a lot of socializing. Yeah. Like, and like, we have been in social situations where I've seen you enjoy the, uh, like the other people when you actually do enjoy them. But then you're kind of like, once you get home, you're like, I'm not talking to anyone for a month. Like, fuck that. Like, nah, I can't do that. Yeah, it's one of those where like, it's a thing that it's not that I, I would say like, we have many acquaintances, but I also think it's the idea of friend. Like in this movie, you can see the difference between Leo's friendship with Remy and his acquaintanceship with the other children. Yeah. There's a stark difference. And I do think there's some people that throw the term friend around because they're those kind of hyper extroverted social butterflies and everyone they meet is a friend in the same way that like a dog who doesn't know any better. Everybody's their pal kind of a thing. Yeah, I- fact that like you say friend but that means many different things like there's these different categories of friends there's work friend there's like a, you know socialized friend then there's like childhood friends yeah and which it's, other like it is like this sad thing that like the media does sell us like these friendships especially like you can throw like the early 2000s and the 90s that there's a lot of films of guys being friends with or girls dudes. too but like we're talking up, there's not as many films as there was before. Like True. there's like you think about like the last film I can think about that was like a bunch of well, buddy cop was a like, whole genre. Buddy, you think about the Hangover, the movie Tag. Like it's a bunch like dudes who are like been. It's always like friends who've been like friends since high school, well, and they college. behave like they're still in high school. We yeah. don't see like I have. It's hard to find a movie that features a serious adult male friendship. Yeah, like I love you, man, is maybe the closest. But even still, it's an Apatow style comedy. Yeah. And it, I think it's like for men, it's just now we're just booming into this weird thing of like toxic masculinity where you have a bunch of alpha dudes being friends with alpha dudes, which makes no sense because if you're going to be the alpha, how are you the alpha of your friendships? Well, <laughs> like, uh, it's this thing where it seems like portrayals of masculinity in media particularly in the states we'll say are becoming starkly more binary where either you're a fucking tough ass bro or you're like gay as hell and there's no like even though we know realistically it's a spectrum of behavior as it is with gender and sexual all of it right but it's with men in particular it's just super straight down the line there's a divide and there's nothing in between yeah and I think it's just, it's this, it's interesting for me because, like, for example, I've seen as you, like, when you were a teacher and you had friendships with, like, some of your coworkers, especially. I wouldn't call them friendships. <laughs> but it was like, See, that's the thing is, like, once again, friendship, that's, to me, a friendship is a very intense connection. Yeah, I think it's more of an acquaintanceship yeah. like, with, with another teacher. And it's like this you've always said that for example you're more comfortable around women Mm -hmm. but i think it also becomes like this weird thing of being a grown man making a friendship with another woman that is not sexual at all because like there's always that weird thing of it being like 
oh, is he like hitting on me or is it just friendship? Kind well, of and once again, those weren't even friendships. Those were acquaintanceships. How often did I hang out with any of these people no, outside of work? Never. Like, <laughs> like, this weird thing that I could understand, like if you ever had an inkling that you'd probably be like, oh, well, we can't cross that barrier because of the way we identify in our own like genders, right? And because that weirdness that follows through, because I remember like I would have coworkers or even just like my other friends when I'd be like, oh yeah, no, Seth's talking to so-and-so person and like they were talking about this. And there is always like that light pause, but be just like, well, aren't you concerned? And it would just be like, to me, there was like, if the concern was there, it was so light because I was just like, well... And like, it's just weird to me because again, like because of gender, because of these weird ideologies that we all subscribe to with or without intention, like guys can't really be guy friends unless like they're super toxic in a way or they're emulating who they were when they were in college. Like this weird thing of it just being like, well, we're guys, we're going to go drink and watch football. Or also like, I hate small talk. Yeah. I despise it. I'm at a point in my life where I don't ever want to have small talk ever again. But then it's also like this weird thing of it being like, well, you know, if your man has a female best friend, then red flag, he's in love with her. Well, I would, I would even say personally, I would feel weird having a female best friend. Yeah. Because I would be like, huh, this is weird. But like, again, I mean, at the same time, I have no desire to be friends with men either. I'm like, oh, God, no. What a headache. Again, it has to do with these weird ideas that we have in our brains as to what should it be when it doesn't have to be that way. Like, there are plenty of people out there that maybe you could have a like a budding relationship with that you'd probably be like, I would never want to cross that barrier. I just want to stay a friend. The idea of having a budding friendship with anyone sounds exhausting to me. (laughs) And I'm like, you know what my best friend is? My imagination. (laughs) And you too. You're on there too. I'm the second tier after your imagination. Outside of my own consciousness, you're my best friend. (laughs) uh so yeah close (laughs) a very thought-provoking movie as you can tell um beautifully shot movie i feel like this movie was more cinematic than all of the marvel disney warner discovery bullshit we get in theaters that claim to be like a cinematic experience this one actually was like oh no we're gonna tell the story mostly through the images very little dialogue but you're gonna understand all of it yeah uh, would you recommend Close to sort of a wider audience outside of who's basically seen it so far? Yeah. Probably. I think you should explore uh, movies that are not strictly just English-speaking movies. They're beautifully shot. It's- well, and this movie in particular, very accessible. Yeah. Just a little over an hour and a half. And you know me, my magic number, that 90-minute mark. This one is yeah. perfect. This one actually could have been longer, in my opinion, yeah. and I wouldn't have gotten upset about it. But yeah, Close... Uh, it's on, available on all the streaming services that you can rent things from. And if you're clever enough, you can find it in ways where you don't have to rent it. Anyway, uh, we'll be back uh, with our second movie in just a moment. 
We are back. Our next film is Saint-Omer, uh, directed by Alice Diop. Uh, it is about Rama, a novelist who attends the trial of Laurence Colli, a young woman accused of killing her 15-month-old daughter. Testimonies from witnesses in Colli's own words soon shake Rama's convictions. That's just kind of the base uh setting of it it is uh alice Diop, the director is primarily known as do for documentaries this is her first uh narrative feature uh she is a senegal french senegalese woman or i guess would that be senegalese french i don't know which one would come first uh and so she actually did this this is based on a real thing where while she i think was pregnant she attended the trial of another senegalese woman in saint-omer who was being tried for the murder of her child. She left the baby uh, on a beach to let the waves carry the baby away. And so the film, apparently in some instances, is word for word the testimony from the trial. Mm -hmm. uh, so, Ariana, what did you think of Saint-Omer? I did not expect to get sucked into this movie the way that I was. Mm -hmm. It was the beginning very kind of like slow and then um also like the first 30 minutes we aren't at the trial. No, it's just setting up Rama. Minutes, yeah, just setting her up. Then we get to the trial and it's it's I don't know what it was exactly. I don't know if maybe it was just like the coloring, the way that everybody acted out, but I was in it. I was in it and like I was captivated. I just could not look away. This was a movie that as I was watching it in my head was like, Ariana's gonna eat this shit up. <laughs> like I, she's gonna like this more than I do. Yeah. That's what's gonna happen. Yeah. Like it was again, it was something that I I I didn't expect because it was just sort of like it felt like, okay, this is gonna be a slice of life thing. And it is and kind it of is. and um we don't really get to we don't really figure out like what she's doing until the trial starts happening and then it's interesting like the conversations that rama is having during that time often with herself it seems like yeah herself um her partner adrian yes so like rama we see her doing a lecture at a university explaining about like how these french women were marked by having their hair shaved off she's explaining to when it's one thing i read and it's a film and book i'm not familiar with hiroshima monomore which is i think a french novel that got turned into a movie about that mm -hmm. and so someone i saw in a review on letterbox was saying how thematically it was telling you what this movie was going to be about by referencing that at the beginning. Yeah. But for people like us who weren't familiar. Yes. Yeah. And so she's explaining that, like, even though the women are temporarily marked, they are marked for the rest of their lives, which in reflection is what's going to happen to Rama as she's going to watch this trial. Mm -hmm. Um, It... What I love is just like, again, we don't know what she's doing. We just know she's working on another... Oh, she's working on a book um she and we don't even know she's pregnant until maybe the last third of there the was movie? kind of a hint at the okay. beginning like uh it was very subtle yeah it was more like she's having uh a meal with her family and her partner who is white um and there's like discussion about like who's gonna take the mom to uh like her like a physical appointment 
um her other sisters can't they look at rama rama's like i can't be there but when there's, there's obviously like this tension yeah, between say, mother and, mm-hmm. and her um, so there's a lot of history there that is intertwined with the things rama is seeing in the trial yes and so the implication is that uh the, rama and her partner are asked are you going on vacation this year and they're like actually we're not going to go on vacation and this is something to explain to american people is uh when you live and work in europe and you work with a european organization they give you a certain percentage of money so you can go on vacation the money can be used for vacation but they said we're just going to do some updates on the house they look at each other they don't explain what it is but you can pick up the hint that the additional work is going to be like they're like their house the for the baby um but it was beautifully shot like it was and it's a movie that doesn't have a lot of things to look at yeah because nine maybe not 90 but like 80 percent of the movie is set in a courtroom yes yet it somehow makes that courtroom very visually interesting yes um i think one of so as the courtroom thing is going on she i don't know if she's talking to her partner or a work person who asked her like what are your feelings about this it's all over the news apparently like um she speaks in a very like elegant french laurence yeah she's educated because she's a student getting her writing her phd dissertation on philosophy yes and rama explains like she's like no she doesn't speak eloquently she just sounds educated so you can feel like the tension in her response because she's talking to a person who happens to be like white over the phone who's not understanding that this person is being depicted in the media in a different way than she can pick it up because they are both black immigrant women at the end of the day and there's an interesting tension there in how laurence is depicted because part of wanting her to come across as intelligent and of sound mind is in order to get a guilty conviction right yes to say she is completely within her faculties she murdered her child on purpose she knew what she knows what she did and she did it anyway she deserves to be punished but it's also the implication that with or without speaking is that because she has an elegant voice it's oh she thinks she's white yeah and um and like her baby's father is an a, a much older white man yes. who is married to someone else yes and so um rama along with lawrence's mother are the two only other black people that we witness within the courtroom the courtroom um but it is just it's so intense at times but it's just people talking and it's people talking yeah and um lawrence really like that character carries a lot of the film along with rama at the least like in their facial expressions the way they carry themselves um and it's subtle facial work yeah and it's she you would almost argue oh she's stone-faced the whole movie but it's like you have to pay attention like when certain people say certain things she gives reactions but they're almost to the point of being like micro reactions but if you're paying attention you're like oh that upset her yes and so um 
Rama ends up talking to uh, Lauren's mother at some point, and it's more like an identification of like, we're both black women. They have a short conversation only for later on when Rama is alone in her hotel room, kind of like sort of in a mourning period, feeling her own pregnancy, having these like thoughts of her own mother is that she is uh, sought out by this woman to go have lunch together and that's when you start to almost feel sad for Lawrence when you start listening to her mother. Well, and then that goes back to Rama and her troubled relationship with yeah. her mother. Yeah. Yeah, because it's like her, she orders the steak and fries and the woman's like, that's too much. And as and this woman is a stranger to and her. And that is like, as a response, Rama looks at her and orders a- Lager. Like a lager. Like she's like, I need alcohol to deal with this fucking woman. Yeah. And the woman starts talking about, have you noticed all the newspapers covering this? They say that she's so well-spoken. Like it is a sense, it's a weird sense of pride that her daughter is all over the newspaper. Because her daughter is likely going to be thrown in prison for For like the rest of of her life. life. Yeah. Yeah. For infanticide. And like how, but she's like, but I don't like the way she responded this morning because she snapped back at one of the lawyers I think it was like she was being cross-examined, yeah. And she's like, she needs to be patient and respectful. That is the thing that I taught her. And it's like this, in this, it's a moment that like Rama is sitting there being like, oh God, even as an immigrant woman, we can't even get away with our emotions on a trial that will determine the rest of our lives. Yeah. It's still you have to behave properly. And it's like, yeah, I, I'm going to be sent away forever. Yeah. And uh, and the best my defense could come up with is, I'm insane, so you need to lock me in a sanatorium. Yeah. So it's like imprisonment is happening either way. Yeah, it's like, and it's, there's also a, at the least, like, Lawrence's uh, lawyer seems to have compassion towards her at the way that she regards the whole thing. The, like her closing statements. Her are really closing good, yeah. statements. The cross-examination towards like the man that she had a child with. Monte, yeah. Who is like... Scum. He, is scum, <laughs> but he is like, he is holding up to his story, clinging it with both hands. But then she just shreds that story yeah. to the point that he's just basically stunned and can't yeah, say and anything. Yeah, start going, I don't know. I don't know. I don't know. And it is, you start to understand that, like, she, Lawrence is completely accepting of the fact that she did kill her child. But she's like, sorcery must have done it because of the depression and anger that she felt. She felt it had to be, like, she had to have it been cursed. It's clear she had a mental breakdown, but she doesn't know how to contextualize that fully. And so it falls back on this, like somebody cast a spell on me or something like it was... that's how like it can feel when you're like at your downest like yeah. she thought like the conversation where she kind of explains that like she went home after she started studying in paris and that everybody started to treat her differently which i was just like yep been there like where people will be like have told me like oh no your accent in spanish sounds so much more american now and you're just like okay so now you're just gonna erase my whole fucking culture and nationality for your own goddamn fucking benefit and how she was like 
Lawrence has this idea. She like she was trained, like she was pushed her whole life to go study in uh, like Paris, where she was forbidden to speak her native tongue because her mother wanted to speak wanted her to speak perfect French, which did not allow her to make friends with the other kids around her. And so when she realizes she gets to this place and she's not going to be successful, that is the only other idea that she has in her head. She was cursed. She was fucking cursed. And it's the fact that like a lot of this is directly from the transcripts that the director sat through the actual trial of. And the whole thing is the director herself, Alice Deal, Senegalese French parents for were immigrants. So she's first generation attended the Sorbonne. Yeah. Which is where she eventually decided she wanted to make films, specifically documentaries. And her documentaries have been exploring the themes of this movie, but you with real people. And yeah. sort of where does someone like her, and she's, I think, maybe like 43, 44, where does she fit in this society where she knows she doesn't assimilate entirely just because of how she looks? Yeah. But she's still... From what I can tell, she still identifies as being French, but she also identifies as Senegalese, like as both things. Like you can't really separate one from the other because it's this idea of like, then her thoughts are probably in French. Then the way she lives her life is as a French woman. But the remark is like when she goes like to her parents native, well, you're a French woman. That's, that's all that you are. But but to, to it's French people, you are not because you yeah. are not white. What did you think of the Rama relationship with her mother? Because we get it at the beginning of the movie. It kind of disappears as we focus on the court trial. And then at the end, there's this sort of facsimile of, you know, 90s home video footage of like a, a birthday party or a dinner. And then we see that relationship again. Mm-hmm. What did you think of that relationship and what? how that added to an understanding of the film. I think it made it, uh, I don't know if you picked up on the sensation that she felt that she was an unwanted child. Her mother never directly regards her. Like she doesn't even look at her most yeah, of, more often than like, not. There is a remark at the beginning on how like her sister's like, you need to put an effort of taking care of her. But when the care that was given to her was so minimal or it feels like it's minimal and passive it's passive it's Uh, it was obligation yeah it's i put a roof over your head i fed you but that doesn't mean i have to be emotionally connected to you of like even the image of her watching her mother get ready basically like cover herself in gold and jewels but still be crying and still knowing that she is going to perform and it is at the end it seems like as if she has forgiven her mother but it's like this thing to contend with where she is not like a warm and fuzzy no she like she talks to her husband being like i don't want to be my mother and he's like your mother is uh, like a broken woman and you are not broken but what does that have to say about you as a person if that is the the love that you received? When her mother's an enigma, even for the audience, like we don't really know when he says she's a broken woman, we know that she has health problems just simply because of her age. But it certainly feels like there's a lot more going on there. And I, I don't know if we're supposed to just simply infer it's, 
well, it's the result of being an immigrant in this culture and how it just beat her down to a certain point that she just doesn't feel anything about anyone anymore. I mean, I could understand that occurring because I think if I relate it to at least the experience of moving to the to the Netherlands, it's like people have this perception of you that you're not fulfilling exactly. And so it it feels like what you're just going to have to do is undersell yourself. So all these things that maybe you thought that you were going to be able to achieve are like you're going to have to almost underestimate everything. And that like no matter what happens, it's like you're never going to assimilate the way that like that culture wants you to assimilate or that culture would then go like, yeah, no, you're one of us now kind of thing. And then the hardship that comes with it, like at the end scene is uh, Rama's mother just mumbling that she's so tired. Yeah. And it's like, it's, it's as if the weight of the world and all the hard work, like finally came crashing down on her. She doesn't even seem like a person. She's just this thing that's existing. Yeah. And like, just, it's, you feel that how she just wants death at a certain point. Or it's just also just sort of like, it's, it's hard to find joy at times in a world that you feel like doesn't want you. Yeah. And that has to be hard for an immigrant and then top of that you brought your children in for a better life and they might have a better life but there's going to be like a certain resentment because they don't fit in fully to a certain degree or it's also you did not give them the love and compassion because to them like well you gave all your energy to your work but all that energy that was supposed to go to work was the thing that provided a roof over your head like food on the table like it is conflicting in so many manners because it's sort of like you leave the place that you were from because you couldn't feel that that it could give you more but you go into a place that will give you even less at the end of the day and like you're questioning yourself like can I survive on scraps and can I survive on this solely while also looking behind you and being like a shark's coming to eat up my land kind of thing it's sort of like it's like it, it it's one that you like when I think about it that way I have like sympathy for the mother but that doesn't excuse yeah yeah excuse the lack of love that rama seemed to have like felt towards her mother and when i feel like rama's interest in the trial is not necessarily that she feels a connection to laurence it's that she sees a connection between laurence and her mother because laurence is a mother who killed her own child yeah and rama is a daughter whose mother barely acknowledges she exists and so I think in watching the trial and listening to Laurence, she's trying to figure something out about her own mother. Yeah. Which is why near the end of the movie, when Laurence looks and gives that like little half smile, because Rama's the only black woman in the court, it upsets Rama intensely. Yeah. Because she's feeling empathy and sees humanity in this woman, which in turn is causing her to re-examine her feelings about her mother. Mm-hmm. 
And this sort of wrestling, and especially with that final scene, you know, Diop puts that in the movie for a reason. The mother going, I'm so tired, I'm so tired, because Rama's come to a point where now she can have empathy with her. Yeah. That I understand why you're tired. I don't forgive you for the absence of love and tenderness in my life, but I can acknowledge your pain and I understand why you have become like you are. Yeah. And so what ultimately you just have pity. Yeah. Because it's just it. And I think you are correct in that, in that manner. And I think there's also this feeling that for a lot of, uh, particularly young women, but a lot of just young people in general, like when they know that they're mostly their mom, but it could be like any parent has gone through so much suffering like part of you almost like wishes if you could change time to stop yourself from being born but to give them a better life like you would like if you could have given them the option to go like somewhere else that wouldn't have made the damage that made them that could have made them happy you would have done it in a heartbeat it's a lot of it's the same that a lot of people feel about like their own like ancestors like I've, I've talked to you said this with you in the past like if I could have remedied in any way that like none of my like ancestors were slaves or were like colonized and that I would cease to exist I would be okay with that because it would mean like a happier group of people that didn't have to endure such the pain that they did and that is I feel like with immigrant parents or parents that sacrifice so much you have that feeling like you like I they're t- like I've even heard artists that like like I uh, think like Azila uh, Banks has a whole song about her just being like if I could have stopped being born to prevented you from going through what you prevented to do I would have done it because you see your parent and you also was like you can't help but think to yourself at times what could have you been had you not been a parent? What type of person would you have been had you not married this person that ended up being your partner? Mm -hmm. Like, and that is something that like can weigh heavy on like kids that have gone through like certain Because it means the erasure of your existence. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, So that was our Mother's Day. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, I didn't realize it until we were recording like, oh, it is Mother's Day. And we picked quite a movie for Mother's Day about infanticide. (laughs) (laughs) But isn't it the most the most motherly of things to commit infanticide? Um, so, would you recommend Saint Omer to a wider audience, or do you feel like I feel like this would be a more challenging movie to to access for most people? I um I say try it because again, I did not expect to be as absorbed as I was in, in this film. But if you are not a person who can like handle a lot of conversation without much visual like if you need a little trinket like in front of you if like, your favorite movies are marvel movies you're not gonna uh, like this then again why would you be listening to this podcast i don't know <laughs> there's some freaks out there um but i still feel like it's a very good film i think the acting was very good i think um the writing was intelligent uh the uh, last closing remarks from like the, the lawyer yeah, was so good, good. Uh, I felt very proud of myself as a little movie nerd because while we were watching it, I go, I bet this director really likes Robert Brisson, who we've seen two of his films, Mouchette and L'Argent. And sure enough, I Googled it and LSD 
very influenced by Robert Bresson. So this movie is Bressonian in that regard. <laughs> uh, I also saw that she referenced uh, an appreciation of the works of Chantal Ackerman, who we've only seen one film of, which is Jean Dillemont, which is Sight and Sound's number one movie of all time now, uh, uh, which is very... I would say is even more mundane than this oh, movie. Oh, yeah, like much more slower than this. But one. this is still like it's in that vein of this isn't a movie that you should turn on, at, you know, two in the morning to watch. You maybe have a cup of coffee, <laughs> especially if you're, you know, an American or you watch a lot of Western entertainment, American entertainment, and you've been conditioned to need to be have like a dopamine hit every ten seconds. Yeah. Uh, and to be like visually overstimulated is this movie is visually stimulating, but not in the same in the way like uh, nerds are stimulating as yeah. a candy. Uh, it's a movie that is it expects as much from you as it's putting into itself. This has been the Pop Cult Podcast, and we hope you enjoyed this episode. Make sure to check out our show notes for any links to reviews or other relevant places, including popcult.blog, which is our website where we post reviews every Monday, Wednesday, Friday, extra stuff on the weekends. If you visit popcult.blog, you're going to find we're in the middle of a series titled The American Theater on Film. Uh, We've reviewed a lot of movies so far, like A Streetcar Named Desire, 12 Angry Men. Coming up soon in that series, we'll be doing movies like Death of a Salesman, Glengarry Glen Ross, and we're going to wrap it up at the end of the month with Angels in America. Uh, if you appreciate what we do on the podcast or over on popcult.blog, we would ask if you would consider supporting us on Patreon. We have lots of different uh, tiers that you can join at with different benefits at each tier. I want to thank our patrons, Morphine, who donates at our sneak preview level, and Becca and Matt, who both donate at our writer's room level. At the writer's room level and above, you get to pick one movie a month that we will watch, review, and you can even add your own uh, thoughts to that review if you so wish. Well, until next time, keep listening.